Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond speaks to Denise Wirtz and Julie Messersmith, two people coordinating all of the COVID-19 research at Johns Hopkins, and there is lots being done. They discuss not only the new innovations being explored to help patients and healthcare workers, but also what the pandemic means for other kinds of research that have been virtually shut down. Let's listen. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. So, Denise, please tell me a little bit about what uh, Hopkins has undertaken uh, in light of this pandemic, which seems to keep spreading. Indeed, and, and in a way, it started off some four weeks ago, which feels like months ago, in the wake of our public health specialists telling us it was time to really seriously think about uh, winding down, ramping down such operations and start really be consistent in our uh, actions. We'd ask undergraduate students to leave the campus. It was right around a spring break and it was only fair we'd be consistent in asking of fellows or postdocs or students or faculty who are doing research on campus to also uh, leave so as to ensure we would be keeping our kind of social distances. At the same time, very early on, it was clear to us that of all places, Johns Hopkins could really mount healthy efforts to develop uh, very quickly maybe better detection tools, protection tools, and indeed treatments for COVID patients. So as we were ramping down our efforts across all the university, we were thinking about how to really create a pipeline of proposals, of projects, and then really quickly think about how we could support those projects to really develop these important solutions. We have the luxury of a very diverse faculty. We have engineers, public health specialists, medical doctors, like few other universities, and indeed many of the projects that are now being supported uh, centrally, multidisciplinary teams coming together to develop those solutions. So working together, we're hoping to do what? Well, it starts with uh, detection, Mm -hmm. right? There's two ways to detect, whereas at the beginning, where maybe with a swab, you'd uh, look at a sample from the nose and from the mouth to try to see if a person uh, has some viruses as a viral load and how much. There's also, as a, a patient is convalescent, a way maybe with a blood sample to determine if that person has mounted an immune response to, to this virus. So there's a lot of false negatives and false positives. That means that this uh, testing is good, but not the most accurate. Any a student will know this in the lab. We use very routine techniques to do this, right? It's antibody-based assays, it's PCR. Um, there's a level of error, and that leads to issues of accuracy. So can we develop more accurate testing for our PCR machines and for our antibody-based uh, gadgets? And, and the, the answer to this could be uh, indeed correct. 
An antibody test will tell uh, you whether someone has developed immunity, isn't that right? Well, at least has developed the antibodies that could actually block these uh, viruses from new infection uh, of this person. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking with, you know, the development of these tests, right now, we, of course, need to be able to scale up to a population scale testing. And the teams at Hopkins are really looking at what is standing in the way of doing that. And one of the things that is the most critical piece to this is the swab that they currently use for the nose swab that they do in the hospital. Um, not only is it pretty invasive, it goes pretty far up your nose, but the, the main company that produces these swabs, they're actually manufactured in Italy. And of course, now we're seeing huge supply chain issues and we're already looking at a shortage at the hospital. So how do we get around that? How do we innovate to create a different type of test that doesn't need to have a nose swab. And so one of our teams at Hopkins that we're funding through this program is trying to create an oral swab. So something that's very similar to what you would do through the whole mail in 23andMe testing where you can swab your gum and it gets enough actual particulates of matter that they can test for the virus from that. And making it so that it's really specific and accurate is the difficult part, of course. Um, but we have one team that's looking at it from one angle and another from a different, and they're both working hand in hand with clinicians, engineers, public health specialists, et cetera. So we're trying to figure out, can we create something that would then be scalable where you wouldn't even have to have people come through a drive-through test. You can do it from home and you can scale it. And the pieces that actually make up this test, it's about $2.50 total. So it's just about getting it right and then to get it large. And to do it quickly. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, so, you know, you would probably tell me about this months ago and it would be like a couple of years from now when we would see something like this. How are we making sure that this is being done, of course, accurately, but then as quickly as possible, given the scale of the pandemic? Yes. All of these teams that had to come forward with proposals, I mean, everything from understanding the host and immune response to the virus to creating new PPE options to studying the genetics of the virus itself, of um, doing sequencing, all of them are on three-month timescales. So, you know, it's, it's pretty um, unusual in an academic environment when, say, our Discovery Awards, one of our flagship programs, we give one to two years for that type of research. This is 90 days, and we are checking in with these teams at least every three weeks. So if there is not, you know, really substantial improvement or progress within those three weeks, we can also redirect these funds. We need, we have about $5.7 million behind this effort. We need that to save patients' lives and save patients' lives within weeks, not within a year. Denny? And for sure, after detection, right, a second line of research that has been particularly successful at Hopkins is the idea of reusing convalescent uh, blood serum. So, and when you say, excuse me, let me interrupt. When you say convalescent, can you explain what you mean? That is blood. No, a patient has been infected, may have had really had symptoms, sometimes bad symptoms, but survive. We can reuse this blood and in particular the antibodies in the blood. Typically, a couple of patients can be treated with that blood matching, of course, blood types and making sure there's not additional uh, infections. The testing tells us that there's no actual COVID particles within this blood to then help these patients with these antibodies of uh, some other patient mount a, a bit of an artificial fight against the virus. It's really two ideas. One is to treat really very sick patients 
And the other population would be prophylactically treat healthcare workers who are in the front line. Two sets of clinicals are going on. One at Hopkins, which is this prolific idea, which is to really uh, pre-treat healthcare workers before they're actually are positive, and the, the treatment of uh, severely sick patients going on at Mount Sinai and other sites. So the vision was that of Arturo Casadeval, one of the Bloomberg Distinguished Professors at the School of Public Health and School of Medicine, who really um, uh, wrote an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal that inspired many others to actually do it. Uh, that idea was endorsed very quickly by the president of the National Academy of Medicine, National Academy of Engineering, and National Academy of, of Sciences. Uh, it must be a first. And then they moved on with FDA approval. And now with this FDA-approved treatment, uh, we're moving ahead with clinical trials. The early data coming out of China is promising, but we want to make sure that we're following, of course, proper protocols and, and proper statistical analysis to ensure that what we're going to say about success of this treatment is actually there. It's very interesting you say that you're going to be testing or you are testing whether these antibodies could prevent illness in healthcare workers. Are you testing other things with the healthcare workers at the hospital? So they're currently testing um, as people come in each day to ensure that, you know, of course, positive, um, anyone who has a positive case of COVID-19 isn't caring for patients. With that material, you know, we're, we've created this biospecimen repository at Hopkins, and so a lot of that will be able to be used for research to be understanding, you know, if someone does end up positive, then we can follow them throughout time and have additional follow-up tests to understand how the virus is affecting their body in particular, because one of the most interesting things and unfortunate things about this disease, of course, is the fact that it can it can affect two very similar profiles in extremely different ways, that one person will end up on a ventilator and one barely has any symptoms. And so the, basically, the more data that we have and the more people that we can track, we can understand that. And so I think that by testing the healthcare workers that come in at Hopkins, that that's also adding to the research pool and understanding, you know, creating a better understanding of that host pathogenesis, that, that interaction with the host body. Another line of research that we're studying very soon is really asking a very important question. If you've been infected once, could you be reinfected? Now, looking at traditionally at um, seasonal flu, it wouldn't be the case. Most viruses, if you've been infected once, typically you'll have uh, an immune ability to, to fight off a reinfection. But there's data coming out of South Korea that suggests otherwise, that could be a small fraction of patients who may have been infected and seemingly are affected the second time. So once again, uh, we'll have to have a more accurate testing that's being addressed. But also, we need a large enough yeah. community of people willing to, to be followed. Healthcare workers is one population, but also the ability to tap into our great surrounding community where uh, Johns Hopkins has built trust among partners in the community to follow people who have been sick and then maybe see if indeed there's a low but real probability of those people getting reinfected. And so as of actually this Friday, John Hopkins will be opening a clinical research unit up at the Green Spring Station 
uh, medical center just north of Baltimore. They're looking at hopefully opening a, a second one after this in Eaker Park or the McElderry Street building down in East Baltimore. But we're starting this Friday, opening this clinic that it'll, you know, it's going to be bare bones. There's a, it's a research tent and anyone um, will be able to sign up online for appointments where they can actually come be tested. We'll be able to hopefully do a lot of the, those antibody transfusions at this clinic center. And that's run by Mark Slikowski and Paul O'Water. And so that's out of the Institute for Clinical and Translational Research. And are those people who have been sick already or who have not been sick before? It'll be open to both, actually. Um, So if people, you know, if you think you may have it, you will be able to go there and be tested. And then if you believe you've had it in the past, you can come get tested, see if you have those antibodies, and then be able to donate that plasma so, Denis, one thing that I'm hearing is we're doing a lot of research on coronavirus, but I understand that you've really closed down most other research. What kind of impact is that going to have long-term on other forms of scientific research? It may have an impact uh, at least more like mid-term. In short-term, I think a lot of the faculty have been very creative in finding ways to, you know, at home, look at data they've collected, um, look at ways to maybe write opinion pieces, reviews, and wrap up studies that were maybe uh, getting finished. It is clearly more of an issue for those doing laboratory work. If you have to do experimental work, you have to be in a laboratory, and if you're prevented from having access to laboratory, it's very difficult to, at some point, continue being productive. And so there's nervousness there. We are starting to think about what could be the creative ways we could, in a very careful way, come back on campus. That's weeks away, maybe months away, uh, but we're going to have to. Um, also, what I have to upload is a federal agency so that the agency that su- support this kind of research, this non-COVID research, have been very flexible. They've provided us with ability to continue charging our grants, being productive the way we can, but we, we don't know how much longer. And so a lot of concerns uh, across the Hopkins University, but beyond Hopkins, all research universities are, are very concerned that this flexibility may go away. So you, you've put your finger on it. We are concerned, and I can't say we have complete clarity of how we're going to be able to move forward if this um, lockdown stays for much longer. And I think that the university was really proactive already in thinking about how this is going to affect the early career faculty members. Um, they already instituted and opt out only one year extension to the tenure clock. And so the institution has really put out there that they understand that a one or two or three month shutdown can have a year's worth of of considerations for an early career faculty member. And so we're moving forward with our Catalyst Award. The applications are actually due next Monday, and we look forward to supporting the early career faculty with some additional flexible funding. But this is definitely going to have a a big effect on people's careers from the social sciences all the way through to the lab sciences. No matter what, even if you are, even if it's not work that has to be done in a lab, we're also juggling now childcare and living through a pandemic. And so I think everyone understands that there's just a lot of flexibility that's needed for people at a time like this. It's such a good point. And and really, as much as you, all of us uh, had... Uh, very kind of positive outlooks. We're trying to early on trying to find ways to continue be, being productive. Then the the reality hit, and the reality is that families with young kids uh, have to deal with that. And and it's many of our clinicians, for instance, engaged in research 
are in the front line, unable to do this laboratory work that they wanted and needed to do uh, in order to fulfill the commitments in the grants. And again, NIH in particular has been particularly flexible, uh, giving us ability to, of course, allow for these great uh, physicians and, and nurses to do the, the important work they have to do right now. But, you know, how much longer? We don't know yet. Julie Messerschmidt and Denny Wirtz, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.